Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Kiana Cape, and I'm from Missouri. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hey, Glenn, how's it going? Uh, everything's still locked down, staying at home, enjoying some TV? Still sheltering in place for <laughs> another couple of weeks. Maybe we'll get lucky and golf courses will open up here in another couple of weeks. That'd be nice. Yeah, it's uh well, heck, golf courses would still be closed in Minnesota by this time, right? Cuz it's all it's still winter. Yeah, but we'll break <laughs> I'll throw on a jacket just to get outside. Yeah, I, I've been um working working working. So it's it's uh, but you know also working from uh just how we divvied up the house. You know, my desk ended up in the the master bedroom, so I'm I'm mainly in this room for like 20 plus hours a day. So it's it's a little going a little stir crazy, but uh, one thing that was a lot of fun was uh, last Wednesday, and actually coming up uh, most Wednesdays, hopefully from going on out, uh, we got together on a Discord server. If you don't know what that is, uh, nerdy people can go on and talk about uh, stuff or any kind of topic you want. It's a little like mini chat room, but we did an audio chat with latent print examiners where we kind of hang out, uh, had some happy hour drinks, and uh, had a really good time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, thanks for putting that together, Eric, and it was nice to chat with people across the country. Yeah, so if you're missing out on whatever conference was supposed to happen this month uh, because of you know, the whole lockdown situation, look for the link in the show notes uh, or on our website and uh, head on over that way. Uh, you can just head that way and chat during your workday over text, uh, or we'll turn on the audio stuff and hang out. Wednesdays doing uh, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. Uh, so next thing I want to mention is a couple of thank yous to some new patrons. I'm not sure if I mentioned them recently, but thank you to Carrie and to Terry uh, for... <laughs> yeah, No relation. Uh, no relation. <laughs> for for joining in and and sending us a few bucks. Yeah, we definitely appreciate the help with that. And uh, you know, like I said, say before, we use it for all the hosting fees, but also to to upgrade our equipment as needed. So thank you again for you guys and anyone else there that wants to help out with our show can go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast uh, to get more information on how to do that. So thank you very much for that. Or you can even support us by going to our website, double loop podcast.com and looking at our merch store there or rate us on iTunes as well. Yeah, that would also help as well. Weren't the twins from Simpsons named Sherry and Terry? I think Sherry and Terry, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what weren't? You use the past tense like that show's not still being aired. Yeah, right. Good point. <laughs> but uh, we got an email, Glenn. Uh, why don't you talk about the email that we got? Right. Uh, we received a very nice email. I, I won't say the name because I don't know if we can or not, but it's from a Canadian who hopefully listening to the show will, will know who we're talking about. They said that they've been listening to the podcast for over a year now, and they want to take a moment to thank both of our efforts and that they find the Double Loop podcast to be an excellent source of information. I'm assuming he's talking about movies, of course, and other nerd <laughs> stuff that we talk about. Yeah, I, I, I got some feedback on uh, quite a few bits of feedback recently about, you know, that was a great episode talking about movies, so... Not that we're going to convert over to a movie-themed podcast, but you know, at least maybe I, I gave it a half a thought. We could do it. We could do it. 
Uh, it's an excellent source of information and has been a great way to stay up to date with new developments relating to fingerprints and forensics in general. I frequently recommend your podcast to my coworkers, which we appreciate because that helps bring in more people. Yeah. He also wanted to thank us for recently profiling the David Cam case. As we mentioned in the program, Cam case has been a watershed moment for the bloodstain pattern community in the same way the Mayfield case affected the fingerprint community. And that I can tell you that the Cam case is frequently used by many of us in the bloodstain pattern community as a learning teaching opportunity. And that was really nice to hear because, you know, I'm a little self-conscious sometimes when we're talking about topics beyond fingerprints. And although, I, Eric, you know, I was trained in bloodstain pattern analysis, had this great mentor. I mean, I've only done, you know, maybe two dozen bloodstain pattern cases. Got it. I, you know, I, I had limited proficiency testing in it. Just it was one of those things I, I never really kept up with. So I always feel a little nervous talking off topic. And even when I was editing the episode, I caught something I said and went, eh, that's not technically <laughs> exactly right. But right. anyway, it was really nice to hear that he enjoyed it and also mentioned that he had had the privilege of completing training with Dr. Michael Taylor, who we had mentioned on the, the show as well, and, and also agreed that that high-speed bloodstain pattern video that we referenced – uh, all, all of that information has actually really helped change the bloodstain pattern community. So it was kind of nice, a little bit of validation for that episode because I knew that some of the things I, I personally was talking about, I, I knew I was going just to that edge of, you know, here, here's where my expertise is, is a little lighter. Sure. Sure. And, and he, he mentions a, um, a Canadian crime that uh, recommends that we take a look and see if maybe we can do an episode on that. So, we, uh, you know, at least scratch the surface and it does look very interesting. So just now got to figure out where to get more information and, and uh, get it scheduled into the show. But uh, definitely thanks for this email and the, you know, the feedback, uh, but also the suggestion for another episode. Yep, definitely. We, we will start the research process or research <laughs> process if you're Canadian. <laughs> yes, yes. One of those, one of those flag words that you, where you can... Uh, zero in on where someone's from. All right, so the topic for this week, uh, there's a you know, new show. Uh, I just binged it yesterday. Season six of Bosch. Uh, Glenn, are you, st- are you keeping up to date? I totally watched and binged the whole season and actually took several videos and <laughs> uh, sent them to Carrie to post on Instagram. Let's put a couple of fingerprint scenes in there. <laughs> there are, there are. Uh, no... We're we're not going to talk about Bosch to, the, today. We're we're going to we're going to talk about that very famous documentary that has come out on Netflix, the one that everyone's it. talking about. The ones that everyone's talking not about. Not the Tiger King, but Tickled. Have you followed Tickled? <laughs> I have not. Oh my! I I am afraid to ask what Tickled is. It's a documentary about competitive endurance tickling. No, <laughs> of course it is. Okay, <laughs> Rule Forty Three on the internet, right? Right. No, no, that other very popular documentary. Yes. Uh, we're going to be doing the documentary, How to Fix a Drug Scandal, uh, detailing the kind of dual scandals that went down in Massachusetts a few years back. I mean, I was obviously aware of uh, the stories in general, but I think I was more aware about the Annie Dukin side of things and not so much uh, the Sonia Farrakh side. 
uh, of the story. Uh, but this documentary went into a whole lot more detail than I had ever known before. And, and I've, again, just found the story fascinating. This all was at the time when I was supervisor of the drug chemistry lab here in at the state lab in St. Paul. So working for the state of Minnesota. And it, we'll probably get into this at some point. We had our – actually, we've had several little drug scandals here in the state of Minnesota. So our laboratory has always been a little sensitive to these sorts of things. But when I, I went over to the drug chemistry lab and became supervisor, it was oh probably about a year or so after – the Annie Dukin case had broken. They were still trying to figure out the ramifications. And then you know, I think a year or so later, two years later, the Sonia Farrakh part broke. But for those that really aren't familiar with it or haven't watched the documentary, it's a four-part series. Uh, each episode's maybe just under an hour or so. So yep. e- easily watched in, in the afternoon or evening. And it details basically two drug chemists with – Two very different problems and two very different issues. The first one, the most famous one, is Annie Dukin. It's D-O-O-K-H-A-N. And she was a drug chemist who was effectively dry labbing. She may have done one or two tests uh, in a number of samples and then dry labbed the rest of it. And she was sort of well-known in her lab for having uh, an, an amazing number of cases that had been worked. And... She was able to accomplish this, of course, because she wasn't actually doing the testing. And this was in eastern Massachusetts. On the other side of the state, in western Massachusetts, there was another drug lab. And this drug lab had a chemist who was doing not dry labbing, but basically was going – had a drug problem and was going into the drugs and began starting very small, replacing small amounts of drugs with – not drugs, things like baking soda or baking powder, laxative sugar, you know, whatever, whatever looked like it could be a drug, and effectively removing and replacing, bait and switch. And she would do this after she had analyzed the drugs. So she knew that she would have drugs, of course, because she tested them, and after testing them, replaced the weights and then would, you know, release them back to the submitting agency. And so while the while Annie Dukin, in her cases, she was dry labbing and not doing the tests that she said she was doing or not doing the controls, in the other case, her name was Sonia Farrakh. She was actually doing the testing, and we'll, we'll get into some elements of you know, the accuracy of the tests. But for all intents and purposes, she appeared to be actually conducting the tests. The problem was she was basically stealing the drugs. And at some point throughout the documentary, you'll learn that she was even on drugs and high while she was doing many of her examinations, effectively a functional alcoholic, if you will, a functional addict, and performing these very uh, analytical examinations while high, even testifying (laughs) while high, which – no, I I think I've testified hungover before, Eric, but I don't think I've ever testified still drunk. <laughs> I don't think so. I would hope not. I, and I mean, honestly, I I would be more concerned about the the you know any kind of hungover or you know just some even any kind of mental uh, you know effect when the test is being performed, and less so on the testimony side of things. But still, to be on the stand while on whatever drug whatever kind of drugs or multiple kinds of drugs maybe 
uh, is uh, it's just insane. This whole story is insane. Yeah, but and and then the 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 episodes sort of wrap up with a part of this that I that was new to me and I had not heard was the efforts apparently of the attorney general's office to basically hide this and hide information from defense who was lodging discovery requests with the AG's office, the attorney general, in an attempt to get access to certain information and evidence. And yep. we'll, we'll get into the details a little bit later. But effectively, it looked like that they were they were withholding critical information from defense. And that, that, that's a fact. What their intent was, if they knew it, if it was deliberate or not, that's not clear. So the show even starts with a, a quote that I think really sums up uh, you know, what's to come. And this is not just a scandal about bad science, but it's a scandal about bad law. And as this, this show went on, that became very apparent that that's the bad science part of this was really only the tip of the iceberg, and it, it got bigger from there. Yeah, agreed. All right, so um, let's go into some more details. Um, I think we're maybe starting with the Sonia Farrakh case. Does that sound good? Sure. So in... January of 2013, there are two pieces of evidence that uh, people in the Amherst Crime Lab are trying to locate. So like you said, this is out in more kind of western-ish Massachusetts, uh, not Boston on the coast, uh, where our, uh, but you know, a bigger city towards the center of the state. So uh, in the investigation to well, where's this evidence that you know this is needed for court, you know, we need to, f- where are these two packages of drug evidence that were tested. The uh, Major James Connolly, who is the Deputy Division Commander for Forensic Services, uh, is involved in looking through this lab, trying to find this evidence. And in that process, goes through, opens up different cabinets, opens up the cabinet of Sonia Farrakh, and uh, finds the missing evidence. Now, it was had long been completed, so this was kind of long past the time where she should have returned the evidence back into the evidence storage area, but you know, they're found here. However, the bags have been cut open after they're, they were finally resealed from the examination. So it looks suspicious looking more through the cabinet. He finds some suspicious looking other chemicals and a crack pipe. Those drug packages are tested and the, while the original tests were positive, the follow-up tests were negative, making it really look like she took the drugs, replaced them with some sort of fake substitute, and had done something with the drugs, come to find out that she had been uh, using them. So the DA is brought in to help investigate, uh, but she'd been working there at that lab for almost 10 years. So this is initially kind of a crazy thing, and at least for as me as you know, working in a crime lab for so many years... My first thought is, well, what about the drug testing? Like, I mean, I, I was randomly drug tested throughout my career. Glenn, I'm, I'm assuming, was, was that the same for you in, in uh, your lab? Absolutely not. So I'm glad you're no? bringing this up. This is this is a good good time to bring this up. Well, that's um, I'm actually surprised. Like, for me, I had the pre-employment drug screening, and then there was random drug screening throughout, which seemed to be focused more like the beginning. I think I was between the pre-employment. And the and the random testing, I think in the first you know couple years, two or so years of being employed there, I had like four or five drug tests, and then just kind of randomly throughout my uh, my oh, twelve years there. So yeah, it came up quite a bit. 
All right, so a few a few things. So let me just back up a little bit more. This scenario where the officer needs the drugs because it's going to trial. This actually happened several times when I was a supervisor. And I have to tell you, Eric, I dreaded this. I absolutely dreaded this because I never knew what I was going to find. Now, of course, I always hoped and assumed that my employees were following all the rules and doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. But the very first time this happens, we can't find a case. And then when we do find the case, it's buried in all this other stuff that was supposed to go back and stuff that hadn't been sealed yet and all this stuff and the employee basically wasn't following policy. And it turned out everything was there. We tested everything. Everything was fine. And it, basically, the employee just had so many cases and they were just really sloppy and they didn't necessarily – um, yeah, you know, send all. They didn't basically work the evidence and then send it back. They would just all send it all back at once, and it was always a little scary when we'd have to go and start looking for evidence that we couldn't find like this. But it actually happened fairly frequently because these drug cases. I mean, our our employees were getting you know, probably thirty to forty subpoenas a month easily. I mean, easily. Oh, wow. And whenever anyone went on a vacation or left the agency, I would have to be responsible for all the subpoenas that would come. And I – oh, I hated it. I couldn't believe the kind of pressure that they constantly lived under of having just subpoena after subpoena after subpoena, whereas in Leighton Prince, I almost never got a subpoena. And they were getting right. – especially our, our busiest analyst who was doing you know, hundreds of cases a month was getting 50 subpoenas easily a month. And if you have to make a call and check on every one of them and check schedules, and the, that alone is a full-time job just keeping up with the subpoenas. The, the amount of stress that they had to deal with was really pretty incredible. So this idea of having to go into the employees and try to find where the drugs were and what part of the process they were in and were they ready to take, that was always one of those, oh, please, please let this not be a scandal. Please let this not be a scandal sort of moment. Right, right. I guess it is a very different world with Leighton Prince. You know, a lot of times there there isn't that immediate need to to finish the case now. And uh, but I do you know, recall some people were better than others at being organized. And as you know, you check out some maybe some big cases that take time to work through, and then other cases come in that are higher um, higher higher priority that you have to work out those first and then come back to a case that you'd set aside for a while that, that there is a, a you know, can be a lot to keep track of and, and you do need to keep everything you know separated and, and organized. And some people are just better at that than others, but I, I don't remember a whole lot of, at least in latent prints, uh, a whole lot of issue of well, where is this evidence? But, and you know, even amongst that, you know, we handled the drug evidence frequently uh, it wasn't until the last couple of years I was there at the lab that the drug analysts started ta- doing their work first and taking the drugs out of the packaging. For the, ver- the first probably 10 or so years I was working there, we got them first so we could be careful in taking the drugs out of the packaging so the packaging wouldn't be damaged and any prints disturbed. But it wasn't until the fentanyl scare started coming up that we switched and had them do uh, do all of that work. But then again, only for drugs that might have fentanyl in it. Yeah, well, that's maybe another issue we'll get to a little bit later. But the, I think our problem was that when you check in the limbs and the evidence was shown to be in the custody of the scientist, 
Yeah. That's actually a fairly broad category of places that could be. It could be in their yep. personal vault. It could be on their bench. It could be, you know, in an area of the vault that they have designated to them for working larger cases. It could be on a bench across the lab. It, I mean, there, there's a number of places that, quote unquote, in their custody could be. It could be on the instrument. It could be in the testing room. There, I mean, half a dozen different places it could be amongst the other 40, the 50, 60 cases that they're working for that month. And, th- and that's the problem that I'm trying to stress here is I mean, they really do have an incredible workload. Yep. You know, and of course, I mean, every case has to be treated independently and, and given 100% attention and accuracy towards. But it really is just a crushing amount of pressure to have to deal with just shitload of cases that's you know some you know, somewhere in their workspace well and and then getting back to here talking about your workspace one of the things that came out here in this documentary is a uh, one reporter called the lab there in amherst a decrepit grotesquely underfunded facility with only one working fume hood <laughs> and uh i don't know about you glenn but seeing just the pictures of the inside of that place was could not believe it i mean i guess maybe i could because i i'm i'm not that naive about the the funding that crime labs receive but i mean there's water damage walls there's you know tiles missing from the floor there's just like goo everywhere on on counters and yeah it's just a mess of equipment all overcrowded into too small of a space and too old yeah, and both of these laboratories were not accredited. I mean, which is another thing that we'll discuss towards you know, towards later in the episode. But you know, I've been to some of the older labs and unaccredited labs, and whether we're talking about drug chem- chemistry or latent prints, I mean, some of them are deplorable. I, again, it's CSI and movies when they show the flashy FBI <laughs> yep. and all the high tech, like. I mean, even, I mean, look, I mean, I love the FBI, but even the FBI will admit that, I mean, even their facility is pretty kind of dingy and not, you know, just a bunch of sort of cubicles, no lit windows and kind of in a basement and, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's the FBI. That's kind of the top of the game. I've, I've been to yeah. so many laboratories that, yeah, the conditions are not what one would expect for the kind of testing that is being done. Drug testing. All right, so let's talk about drug testing. All right, so here's my experience, Eric. I was very surprised that we did nothing. We did no drug testing, not at all in our laboratory. Uh, We have a drug testing once you're hired. And in order to be hired, you go through drug testing, but nothing after that. I had asked about that before. I know our managers... I looked into that, and this is something that basically the union, it was one of these things the union will never never go for this. And even though they're handling drugs, I would have preferred that we had had drug testing, uh, even though I you know, had the utmost respect and trust in them. Uh, it's the kind of thing that how, how do you not – drug test the people who are handling drugs every every single day it's it's mind-boggling to me but then i would go around the country and ask other drug chemists and other laboratories do you drug test your folks do you drug the the common answer was no we can't or we're not allowed to or the union this or the union that or no we drug test them when they're on but they don't ever get drug tested again it was actually a fairly common answer so you surprised me 
when you told me that's that your crazy. agency had routine drug testing because that's that's not the experience I, I had personally seen in accredited labs, but it right. was more common in police like police labs where the police organization will, will have that and that'll just be a part of it. Uh, but I, 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 I really should have kept track, like an official track of numbers, but it was actually pretty common for me to hear, no, we're, we don't do that and we're not allowed to do that. You know, the, the, I mean, we both worked for accredited labs. I think the difference uh, being that none of the lab staff where I worked part of the union. So, ah, uh, interesting. which <laughs> had all sorts of other problems, but yeah, that, that, that's, um, I bet you that's a big part of it is, you know, ones where you see that, that union involvement, uh, it might be less likely to have, uh, to have drug testing as a requirement for, you know, randomly throughout the year. Uh, for employees. Yeah, and you know, we talked about installing cameras and such, like cameras in vaults and you know, the big thing was installing cameras in the laboratory because then what if that's discoverable? You know, now it's like having doctor or cameras in the surgery room, doctors are generally against that. You know, there I mean, it there are all these things that we had suggested and in the end all we did really to address it was have training from various police officers who are trained in recognizing when people are high or uh, you know have an addiction and they would come in and talk about here are the things to look for the dilated pupils or the constricted pupils or sweating or this or that uh, and you know they they'd show all the different kinds of symptoms uh, of an addict on different kinds of drugs and it was just more of an awareness program, but that was yeah. that was about it. And it was sort of if you suspect something, say something. Well, you know that reminds me of back when I was in my twenties before I started in forensics. I worked for a um, a large company that did contract work at other facilities. So I was at a semiconductor plant uh, doing water purification as a contractor, and we had a new employee start with us, and uh, he's supposed to have all this experience and everything. And after a few weeks, I was kind of like, I finally went to some of my coworkers and was like, have you guys noticed this guy like kind of disappears for a while? I don't know where he goes and he's not, he doesn't seem to be doing what he's supposed to be with like what everyone else is doing. And they were like, well, about time, Eric, you're literally the last one to actually notice enough to say something. So I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Hmm. What, you know, they, they, you know, they, before they could actually though go and you know, address it. I come into work one day and no one can find him. I'm working overnight. Shift change happens. Next guy comes in first thing in the morning. The guy was supposed to be there with me. I'm like, I haven't seen him in like four or five hours. I guess he went home early. I, I don't really know. Uh, but, but I knew that they were going to be addressing it there just that, you know, in a couple of days they had a meeting scheduled. Well, it turns out he'd overdeed on either uppers or downers and they had found him in like the cafeteria and called the ambulance and taken him away and, and, he at least survived that that OD. Hmm. But I just felt so naive that I couldn't put it together of, oh, yeah, he kind of disappears for like, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. And and sometimes he's really up and sometimes he's really down. And and I, I just felt really naive in not being able to recognize that. Uh, interesting. So I'll, I'll share this. And, this, you know, this is public knowledge here in Minnesota. When I was hired at the crime lab, well, and funny, when, when I was hired at the crime lab here, they uh, did a drug test, of course, and you know they asked me 
basically there's no polygraph which you had to get a polygraph right for your for for your yes, agency yeah okay so we don't we don't have polygraph here for hiring which i'm very thankful for because i think it's it's a ridiculous practice but and and i think you end up in uh, losing good candidates due to crazy polygraph practices but put that aside Luckily, I, we don't have that here. But it's funny. Here, the the only question they asked me before hiring was, "Is there anything you'd like to tell us?" And my answer was, "Oh no, there is nothing more I would like to add." <laughs> now, that's that's funny. That's a that's a funny question. Just you, you only catch the you know the guys that aren't paying attention, but I might catch a couple. Right. Now, I, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but when I was in college, I mean, I, I had a lot of friends who did a lot of drugs. And like the house that I lived in, they did a lot of drugs. And I was usually the sober person. But I mean, I, I tried drugs in, in college and not just marijuana, but a few different drugs. And when I was applying, uh, one of the agencies I applied to was Illinois State Police. And, you know, they asked a lot more about drug history and they had very specific questions. And I thought, well, you know, that was five years ago. Why lie? So, uh, you know, I I was fairly blunt about what I had done and I, you know, never got the job. And and looking back, I realized, uh, yeah, I probably made it pretty easy for them to cross me off. But even when I was in college, I was surprised that when I, you know, they didn't tell their incoming forensic science majors, hey, you probably shouldn't do any any drugs. I, I remember the first time I learned about the FBI's policy back then, it's changed a bit now, but back then my professor said, you know, when I was a junior, now after several years of courses, taking forensics courses, uh, he said, look, guys, if you're thinking about becoming a forensic science, don't do any drugs. And it was way too late at that point. And uh, it's funny that you don't learn that until you know, well into your junior and senior year in, in college. That's something that it might be important to know that some agencies, if you've ever done drugs or done anything more than marijuana once or twice, you can forget about it. So, I mean, you know, they have these fairly restrictive policies and rules at the time. So when Minnesota asked, anything you'd like to tell us, I said, nope. <laughs> and and <laughs> at that point, I mean, I hadn't touched anything at all in, I don't know, eight years at that point. So, you know, I and, and I had no intention of ever doing drugs again. I, I had no intention of ever doing any drugs again. It was just... No interest to me. Did a couple in college, got it out of my system, done. Right. So here in Minnesota, our, the, the person that asked me that question is – or at the time, he was our assistant lab director. And he was always considered the heir apparent he, that when our lab director retired, he was going to become a new lab director. I always found him a little intimidating, a little awkward to be around. He had a real type A personality. And if it was just you and him – the conversation get a little weird sometimes. It's just a little awkward. Um, he was very for. I mean, so a real so a scientist is what you're <laughs> describing here. Well, no, no, uh, because he was he was not at all introverted. He was very much extroverted okay. and very type A and very aggressive in some ways. Just he asked questions that always would catch me off guard. Like I mean, and, and I would always tell him what I was thinking. But I mean, I worked a couple of crime scenes with him, and he was just a very what, what, whatever was on his mind, he'd tell you right away, sometimes without social rules or mannerisms, just very blunt sort of individual. Well, 
people started noticing, but I didn't notice this. I just thought he was always kind of an agitated person. But in retrospect, I mean, it's pretty obvious now. He had a, a, a drug itch. And when he started, you know, getting cravings, he would start to scratch his skin and start to like shift his position, and uh, uh, that always just came across as just a very nervous, kind of agitated person. But we found out later that uh, he he was the lab director or assistant lab director, so he had access to our controlled buy drugs. So our agents that would do controlled buys, he had access to that drug cabinet, and he would go in and take cocaine, and he basically then replace the cocaine with additives that looked like cocaine and mix it all up. And the problem was that his habit got so bad over, you know, a period of a year or two that he was consuming all of it and replacing all of it with non-narcotics. And he had no way of getting new drugs. This whole documentary follows, you know, a person with a constant supply of drugs. And they even talk about how Sonia Farak would manipulate the cases so that she could get the drugs that she wanted and work the cases right, right. that would have certain kinds of drugs. He was the assistant lab director, so he had no reason to ever have any access to any drugs coming in. So he had this limited wow. su- supply that once he used it, what was he going to do to get new drugs? And so, I mean, I always felt very badly for this guy that, you know, this must have just been torture for him knowing a ticking – this was just a, a, a ticking clock that eventually he's going to get caught here. But the habit was so strong he could not stop using. But knowing that he, he had a very limited supply and that eventually these cops were going to be going undercover – with non-drugs, but they don't know that. Oh, that's not good. They think they have cocaine when it's been replaced with some other stuff. So, I mean, it, it was just a, you know a real mess. Uh, you know, eventually he got caught, and I, I remember a lot of people that knew him and had come up with him as a forensic scientist. I mean, everyone was very hurt and offended, and yeah, you know, because they felt that he had, of course, violated public trust and all of this. I mean, I, I felt very badly for him, but I never. I don't know. I I never I, – I just – I felt sorry for him, not angry at oh, him. Yeah. I just – I felt sorry and I tried to imagine what that must have been like in that position knowing that it's just a matter of time before you have this amazing position, this amazing life and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. That's crazy. And then the, the, the danger that you know you're putting those officers in uh, – I mean one of the – cases that stands out to me in my memory of from the cases I worked was one uh, a homicide where I was looking for fingerprint uh, f- you know for latent prints on like glassware from a meth cook and you know going through other reports in the case it was it kind of stood out to me it was one of the only cases I can remember where the drug analysis was negative there was no meth in this case but all the glassware is just caked with crystally goo right and it turns out this guy was trying to sell some sort of substitute. I think it's used for like to rub down horses, some sort of chemical that you can get for horses. But if you cook it just right, it looks looks like meth. And he was trying to sell that, and they killed him for it. So, mm. you know, similar kind of thing. The danger you would put officers in bringing fake drugs to a you know, potential drug sting. Yeah, and I'm gonna one more little element of the story that's just so bizarre. When we were moving laboratories. 
he, he was still our assistant lab director and we were moving from one building to the next. And he had gone back to the lab, lab to move something or move uh, some other final last things and, and somewhere in the drug lab like fallen behind like some shelf or something or in, in some vault shelf – Fallen behind, he actually ends up finding some evidence from an old case that was supposed to be destroyed. And so effectively, I don't remember how much it was, but a couple hundred grams of cocaine lands in his lap. And he actually now has an out because he can go back in to the agent's drug supply and replenish it because he now has enough cocaine to do that, or at least close enough to you know to right. do that. And he can't stop himself. He ends up he using – that drug as well and uh, i mean and here he has this sort of gift from you know from god and still can't stop himself i mean it, it is really really sad he he ended up doing fairly minor jail time house arrest and obviously doesn't have a career in forensics today which i, I think was right i mean this was not a criminal this was a person with a disease that needed to be treated, which I'm, I'm, and we'll get back here to the documentary. You know, they, they go into this quite a bit, too, about the sadness of how so many people get locked up in jail for drug problems. Yeah. When they're not stealing, they're not thieving, they're not doing – not yet and not that necessarily will come to that, but for possession, which is very different than some of the criminal activity – that you know sometimes comes with drugs but it, it you know they're thrown in the same into the same bin as you know hardened criminals yeah all right so so back to to sonia farrakh uh, and this lab in amherst massachusetts like you mentioned th- this wasn't an, was not an accredited lab they they had more or less the right equipment to do the work uh, there was a a forensic chemist that they interviewed on the show that just at least described it that way, but it didn't look like they had good procedures. They didn't track their standards. There didn't appear to be enough control over the people in this lab. And from the documentary that they described, this is one supervisor, a guy named James Hanchett, uh, three chemists and one evidence tech. So that immediately brought back, you know, at least to me, memories of working in the Lake Havasu City lab where there was one supervisor we had two or you know depending on you know what stage things were at two or three drug chemists uh two or three latent print examiners and that's kind of it analysts often work by themselves sometimes would check out evidence by themselves and there was always a backlog and again this just brought back memories of working in lake havasu where you know it didn't take much for you know someone's in training uh someone's in court someone's observing that person in court someone's on vacation you're there by yourself yeah it it didn't take a whole lot for that to happen most days you know there were you know we were all there but you know, occasionally you would come to that day when there there wasn't uh, however our facility that was the that was kind of the at least a difference is is our facility was was much newer and nicer than uh, what was pictured there in the documentary but um the, the documentary then describes Farakas at some point being curious and during a rough period of her life about the effects of different drugs and had looked up meth and had thought, Oh, that looks interesting and kind of filed that away. And then later on now, after she's working in Amherst, she decides to open up a bottle of the meth standard, put in a pipette, drip some into her mouth and 
boom, she is alert. She's got pep. She's boom, 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 doing all sorts of work. The kind of, I guess, the stereotypical effect of uh, methamphetamine on a person. Yeah, the the thing that about that, though, that scared me was, of course, using the pure standard. Exactly. I was supposed to, to say that. Yeah, I mean, that that's... That's bizarre. That's crazy because I don't know what the therapeutic dose would be for the pure standard versus what you might expect yeah. on the street. Like, I mean, I I've known fee- people who have taken various forms of methamphetamine, not smoked it, but various kinds of like, well, hell, it, it was even a diet product in in the eighties. You could find forms of amphetamine, dexatrim, and these other sorts of drugs. So I've known people that have used various forms of amphetamines before and. I can't imagine what it would be taking it from a pure vat of that stuff. That's that's crazy. And this is this big, you know, glass bottle. I mean, what, what, a few liters of it, or uh, it, it looks uh, like quite a bit from just the, the at least what they showed in the documentary. But just yeah, the idea of just taking this chemical of of you know it's basic. I mean, it's basically pure, so not what you would get on the street, and just guesstimating how much to take to get an effect <laughs> that just seems insane yeah yeah so from there she starts doing it every day and it sounds like her normal method was to take a metal spatula dip it into the standard and lick it off first thing in the morning to get a start to the day then multiple times a day then taking some home but the meth standard lasts her from 2005 when she starts doing this until 2009 uh, when a when the supervisor there in the lab announces that there's going to be an inventory of the drug standards so in a panic she just grabs some water and dumps it into the the the, the glass bottle to make up the difference of what she's been taking for the past you know four or five years now I yelled at the TV when that happened <laughs> I, I could not believe because my first thought was, she there's no way she has a chemistry background now they go into her background a little bit and apparently she did fairly well in high school and college as a, yeah. as a as a chemistry major but my first my first thought was what the hell eric i assume you're going to talk about this well because the the <laughs> they're not they don't mix right <laughs> it's, nope. it's like water and oil it, it separates out in the layers I, I, now I'm laughing to myself because I'm picturing you yelling at the TV. What are you on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I mean, but. it's not like she didn't have access to other like nonpolar solvents. I mean, I'm sure yeah. she had access to acetone and chloroform and other other things she could have used in substitute. So, I, yeah, that I, I I I was blown away by that. Well, so then the supervisor does the inventory, right? And he sees this bottle with this separated liquid inside with different these different phases, uh, oil and water phases in the bottle. And it's like, oh, boy, this must have gone bad. <laughs> he throws it away. You know, I would have done the same. I would have assumed it. it's just so old and we don't keep track of our standards. Uh, it's just absorbed moisture from the air, humidity. It's a crappy lab. I, I would have done the exact same. It's just crazy. I, I, I would have been irritated that my analyst didn't notice. That's what would have bugged me. I would have assumed the same thing, but I've been like, hey, guys, are, are you using the standard that appears to have gone bad years ago? What's up? 
I, that that would have been my sticking point. And and again, they had at this point no way of tracking, so he hadn't been going through and checking and noticed. Oh, this is different than it was last year. This is the first time he'd done this and checked this. So, oh, that was another thing. I think one of the attorneys who comments said they weren't doing like monthly audits or inventories or something. Man, we did inventory annually, and it was the worst two or three days of I I frigging dreaded inventory in the drug lab it was the worst it was the absolute worst people do not realize how many standards you can have in a drug lab and oh there's lots of standards yes it's it's easily over a thousand and you will eventually find one or two that did not get disposed of correctly and it then it just becomes a paperwork nightmare i mean someone might have used the last standard and forgot to have scanned the the barcode to disposed of i mean you're using I mean, again, in the course of a year, you're thousands of standards. Right. All it takes is one empty vial to not get scanned properly, and you've got now a missing drug standard. Uh, it, the idea of doing that monthly, uh, that that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that, I, I'm in favor of other kinds of controls, but not monthly inventories. Well, you know, that was always a running joke back at the lab where I worked was, you know, when the zombie apocalypse comes, you know, do you want to lock yourself in the gun standard room? Yes. Where, you know, where that's like, I mean, basically the, the concept of, the, of that is, you know, there's a room with literally every possible model, make and model of gun because they need to then have it as reference standard where they can maybe disassemble it, use different parts of it if they need to check other guns that come in as evidence or... Do you want to go to the drug standard room, do one of everything, and just peace out uh, and not have to deal with the zombies? You know, different different philosophies led to different choices there. Uh, and, you know, luckily the zombie apocalypse has not come. We've got this other one instead. But, the, you know, that was – Not yet. I've seen – exactly, not yet. We're, we're still preparing. So you still have time to make this decision. <laughs> so now she doesn't have her drug, right? So meth is her drug of choice. But she's now concerned about using it up, uh, using up the standard and having it noticed. So there's this moment of truth that's described in the show where this cocaine evidence comes in. It's from a large seizure. And she kind of realizes that she can now get this other drug, especially from this particular case. She cuts into it, takes some, starts doing cocaine now. This leads to her to becoming more unstable uh, over around the summer of 2011. However, the number of cocaine submissions has started to decrease. So she's basically kind of eliminated, gone through what she can work with from the methamphetamine standard, the amphetamine standard, and the ketamine standard. So she starts smoking crack cocaine. So she takes some practice getting the the crack pipe just right. She uses lab test tubes to make these things. But she has to now, like you mentioned earlier, start manipulating the system to make sure she gets these larger cases so she can steal some of the drug. She she can't take part of the drug if there's only just a minuscule amount. She's got to make sure she gets this big case so she can take some from it that then won't be noticed. And the show then describes her making crack from the cocaine uh, that she can pull from these uh, these cases. Yeah, all right. So let, let, let's talk about a couple of things here. I, again, from personal experience, I, I know that drug labs have different 
different rates of submissions. It's one of the things I always ask, like, what's the most common drug around the country? What are you guys seeing? What are you seeing? What are you seeing? And I know our laboratory saw approximately 50% of submissions were methamphetamine. And mostly personal use amounts, by the way, which is what we're dealing with here. It was really only the federal cases that would have larger amounts. Right. And then cocaine was somewhere around 20%. Marijuana and related THC might be another 10% here in Minnesota where it's not legal. Is this by percent of of cases? Yes. Okay. Oh, items. Items coming in. But percent of items. It was pretty close to the uh, percent of cases. Was the big one that used to be around 8%, 7% in a lab and then took a huge jump up to about 12% of our cases with some percentage of that being laced with fentanyl. And then the rest of it were all designer drugs and other yeah. other various things, bath salts and those sorts of drugs. So cocaine represented about 20% of the items and cases that we were getting. So I was a little surprised to hear that they had had this drop in it because I don't ever recall a drop in cocaine cases. Um, at least that wasn't our experience here in Minnesota. Right. It may have been some sort of like local dealer got busted that you know was like the pipeline of it from somewhere else that then just affected their local uh, supply. But or it's as as you were alluding to earlier, it's it's not about the percentage of cases of personal use possession yeah. cases. It's got to be what were the feds focusing on? You know, generally they bring in the larger cases. You know, because I mean that's really. That's the only time we'd see the larger cases is if it was a federal case, some sort of you know larger operational thing because 95% of the cases we saw were personal use possession cases. Got it. And that's – it's so funny how you were just describing all that. It's a little bit different or at least my memory was a little bit different in Arizona where you know, you're, you're on the border – for you know north south traffic but also on some major highways for east west traffic stuff coming uh, coming to or going from uh, California so you know we we'd see these big seizures you know with with some regularity and and mostly you know seemed like most of our work involved uh, marijuana but mm-hmm. and that could be biased based on the stuff i was seeing as a latent print examiner uh, dealing with the drug packaging sure. but um sure and then definitely a lot of meth, but then also that started to drop off, oh, probably 2010 or so when a lot more controls went in uh, to the Sudafed market. So that was harder to actually cook it in the state and you had to cook it somewhere else. But Yeah, yeah and that we did see a, a huge drop in is yeah. local methamphetamine, dirty methamphetamine. But then it just switched over to Mexican methamphetamine made in super labs, which, you know, on, on Breaking Bad, they talk about Heisenberg's ability to get 96 <laughs> to 97 percent purity. We routinely saw 97 to 100 percent purity methamphetamine made in super labs. I mean, that was routine, and it, it did not all have a blue tinge to it. I was, gonna, I was about to ask, was it blue? No, no. no. Uh, the only time we ever saw blue meth is when some dealer got smart and was adding blue food coloring to his right. methamphetamine. Because of the show. Because, because of the show, right, exactly. Right. Right. So uh, on the show, they do a little how to make crack cocaine. If you're not familiar with how to make crack cocaine, it's a nice little how to segment. And it's, it's pretty simple. 
Yeah, it's uh, what some baking powder and That's some it. and some cocaine and some water and a beaker, and, and there you boil, go. And boil it now. I, I'll test your your street lore. Do you know why <laughs> you add baking soda to it? Why Why do you make crack cocaine? Why didn't she just take the cocaine and use the cocaine? Oh, I I don't I don't know this. I it's. I mean, just memory of the 80s and 90s, it was cheaper or something. I, I, I don't, but I don't remember the details of why crack was better or worse or whatever than regular cocaine. Yeah, this is a nice, good urban, racial, uh, white privilege sort of thing to, to, oh, okay. to, to, to check here, to, to <laughs> test. Uh, so um, a lot of people will think that, well, no, you, you make crack cocaine because you can get more of it. You can add more stuff to it. And that's not true because you can do that with cocaine as well. You can cut cocaine. The reason that you make crack cocaine – so this, this was telling to me. That's why I'm, I'm saying this. She didn't just take the cocaine and use the cocaine like she could have, but she made crack cocaine. And the, the distinction about that is when you add baking soda to it, Cocaine and its white powder, when you see it in the movies, and Scarface, that cocaine, that's, co- yeah. that's cocaine hydrochloride, and you can't smoke that. So by adding baking soda to it, you change it from cocaine hydrochloride to a basic salt of cocaine, and now you have a crystallized salt that's harder and brittle. And that can be broken into little rocks, and it lowers the melting and vaporization point, which allows you to smoke it. And because you can smoke it, it then vaporizes quickly, gets absorbed into your bloodstream, and can pass right. through the brain blood barrier faster and easier. And you get a faster, quicker high instant, you know, within a few minutes at, at the same rate it takes you to get a nicotine high off of a cigarette. It's the same rate that it takes you to basically get super high off of crack cocaine. So that told me something about her drug knowledge of, no, I want to get really high, not just a little high or a little bump, you know, to add to my day. I want to get freaking high. That and so that that was meaningful to me. And and boy does she get high. So I mean, she is she is basically smoking crack all day, every day. She is taking these 20-minute breaks, so much so that a co-worker uh, notices and even asks about it. I mean, again, this made me think back to my, the old co-worker I had uh, that was uh, doing drugs. She'd go to the downstairs bathroom so that people wouldn't smell it. She'd smoke right in the fume hood so people couldn't smell it. She'd smoke in her car at home while she was driving from home, work to home. She's basically taking as much as she possibly can, turning it into crack and being high just all the time. Right. Yep. Which means that, and as the attorney is going to point out later, I mean, she's doing this work while really high. I I, I, I knew people that smoke crack that, man, I'm, you were, I mean, you were out of it. I mean, you were really out of it. And I, I don't know how she could be functional. That's, that's insane to me. I mean, and drive to and from work and you know fill out paperwork and this and that i mean that's that's pretty pretty amazing well so and there's one mention here of a particular day where uh, that we'll kind of get to uh in the the next half of the story but there's a particular day where she decided to take some liquid lsd (laughs) she is hallucinating just out of her head and then does crack like while hallucinating on LSD. And I was just like, that's, I mean, man, 
talk about just devolving insane and that is that's just crazy that is crazy yeah uh, and and LSD was the drug of choice of my friends that I I lived with so they would all drop and I would drive them places and be the so you know sober cab guy and oh man I I mean there's you are not fu- you're not functional uh, this I mean you're probably talking about like the like the skin contact or like other tabs. Form- I mean, they were do- paper tab. But she's doing like standard LSD, like you know, ultra pure, and then doing crack. Yeah, again, I don't know how you get the dosage right because you know people know people know what the street doses are. They they don't. I I don't know how she would know how much to take from a pure standard. That that's just scary. That's crazy. So uh, this is kind of you know the story. You know, all the way now leading back up to those missing samples in the lab and she is you know especially with the crack pipe found in amongst these tampered with samples uh she is arrested uh charged and uh eventually convicted and sentenced to 18 months in prison what we're going to come back to next week uh, is talking a little bit more in detail about the prosecutor and attorney general's response to this but in the initial press conference after the story hits, in just a few days right after uh, her arrest, uh, Attorney General Martha Coakley said that there were only two samples affected by her her drug usage, and those are the two samples that were missing and had been found tampered with you know, right there at the end before her arrest. Yeah, they they interview uh, what was it, an ex prosecutor or someone from from the AG's office or. I don't know what that that dude's role was. That one attorney. Yeah, I think it's David Sullivan is who you're talking about. Um, who I'm not exactly sure how he's related to the case, but he's a district attorney. Yeah, I, it, he he seemed to have this prosecutorial view, and, and he said something along the lines of, "Yeah, I don't know that that was a right." thing to say at that time i mean yeah they're trying to do a little damage control but you don't know all the facts it's probably not the best time to go and we're sure this doesn't affect anything else we can tell you that everything is reliable here don't worry about it everything's good i i thought that that was insightful of him to to be on that because yeah i mean it seemed a, a bit early when the answer could have been We'll look into it. We'll keep you notified. This this is an ongoing investigation. We will continue to investigate. We'll let you know as we find things out. Right. She did not do that. No, she did not. And we will come back to that here here next time. All right. Well, Glenn, uh, looking at our timer here for how long we've been recording, I think we're going to have to save even the Annie Dukin part of of this uh, documentary for next time, and as well as uh, all the discussion of uh, all the attorneys and their part of the story, we'll kind of bump that off to to next episode. Sounds good. We've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, there's still <laughs> definitely a lot to talk about. But I, I, I guess just to, to close off here for, I mean, at, at this point, you know, really the story kind of switches from Sonia Farrakh to uh, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors and the AG's office. But uh, to close out her side of the story, I, I think you mentioned something earlier, uh, and, and specifically in relation to uh, you know, your former boss uh, there in Minnesota. I'm just feeling sorry, you know, for for this person. Yes, and I mean, honestly, obviously, her her poor choices led to an extreme amount of problems in the state of massachusetts suffering for uncounted defendants uh, miscarriages of justice 
that may never be reconciled. However, there became a point where she was also an addict and, and just had that monster on her and didn't have, or was unable to get herself out of the situation. And and I guess it's that part that, that I feel sorry for. Yeah. And and can I, can I add to that? Yeah. So are the people that are being convicted and you know, this, maybe I'm sharing a little bit of my libertarianism here and a little bit of my, my, my concerns about how this country handles drugs and controlled substances. But I mean, you know, like you said, I, you, you feel sorry for her in the episode. I mean, she did some terrible things that she deserves some jail time for. But like you said, she's an addict, as are many of the yep. people that were being convicted by the very evidence that she was giving. Oh, absolutely. You look at and see how our country responded to the recent opioid crisis, which you know affected more, you know, generally a certain class of people versus how it responded to the crack epidemic back in the 80s and 90s. And how and that was related to a different class of people. So, yeah, overall, our, our country does not have a great track record of uh, of handling things fairly substance and appropriately. Abuse. Yeah, and, and, right. Which is a substance abuse problem. Hopefully, maybe with opioid epidemic and how that affected a broader set of people, you know, the country maybe is moving from that learning process into a more appropriate way to dealing with problems like this i, I don't but, know i mean look at california and the and the homeless problem when it comes true. to substance abuse and mental health it and, and lack of you know a support family system for the for the i don't know eric i mean we don't usually wax into these kind of topics but this true. is a, a big broad problem that our country does not handle well and has not handled well we treat it more as a throw the person in jail lock yep. you know lock them up and we have prisons just crowded with people, you know, usually impoverished and you know racially and disadvantaged people in prison, as opposed to the treatment that is clearly what they need, whether it's mental health or substance abuse. And we'll go into some of those specific stories next week when we talk uh, about some of the attorneys and the people that they represent. But no, and and my heart breaks for some of these stories. And, you know, you see him here on this documentary and in other shows as well. Uh, but, you know, there's also, you know, feeling sorry, for, in feeling sorry for those addicts. I also, you know, have this sympathy for, for uh, Sonia Farrakh as well. And in the end, wish that the, the lab system had been in place to, to protect against this, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. honestly, do you think that she would have ever taken that first pipette if if lab policy had been to random drug test no no i don't think so either i don't think she would have i don't think she would have dared at that moment yeah i i I would totally agree such a simple fix but again there a large majority of her labs not doing that so uh to close off what other fixes again this is more the sonia farak part of the story what other fixes would be appropriate to counter this? Uh, accreditation, controls over the the standards, um, you know, assigning of cases. I don't know that accreditation would have been necessarily helpful because, again, I'm thinking about my analysts. If one of my analysts had decided to start stealing drugs and replacing them 
uh, you know, with non-controlled substances. We don't do purity testing. So even if we were to retest certain cases, we wouldn't necessarily know other than reweighing substances. But then you, the weights will be different anyway because they will have consumed some amount to do the testing. But if yeah. they were taking large amounts, we would notice that. I mean, I I don't know that other than drug testing. Or cameras, which no one is in favor of the cameras, and that means someone has to go and and look at all that video. So other than drug testing, I don't know any other way, and that would be, the to me, the most easy fix. Right, right. All right, well, please join us all next week. Uh, Glenn, do you have any classes you want to mention before we go? I'll just go to the website, and we we still have a couple of, of classes that didn't get canceled here in the summer. And then certainly ones that got moved to the fall, just go to EliteForensicServices.com or email Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, that's two N's, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. And I can tell you myself what's coming up or go to RonSmithAssociates.com and you'll find plenty of courses I teach there as well. Sounds great. And also make sure to follow us on Twitter at DoubleLoopPod. Same for Instagram. DoubleLoopPodcast.com is our website. And then patreon.com slash double podcast. And don't forget to join us on Discord. Look for the link uh, in the show notes or just send me an email and I'll send that to you Wednesday evenings and we'll join and chat about fingerprints and non-fingerprint stuff. I think that's all the ways you can find us online or email is eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. So the opinions expressed are those of the speaker and not anyone else. And with that, we will see you guys next time. Stay healthy. Bye, everybody. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane.